Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brennan Buddha. This episode, we're talking about the short story, How I Lost the Second World War and Helped Turn Back the German Invasion, which was originally published in Analog in 1973. And we read the story in the collection Castle of Days. And this is uh, this is only the second episode that we've recorded since we started releasing episodes of Elder Sign, which is our weird fiction podcast. And we just wanted to take a minute here at the top of the show to thank everyone who helped spread the word about that show. The likes and the shares on social media were a, a really huge help. And the, the ratings and reviews on iTunes and other podcast apps were really awesome. And we're, we're so grateful for all of this. And of course, you know, this is all just part of our sinister plan to introduce gene wolf to a new audience yeah definitely Uh, and i just want to echo your thanks glenn it's a huge help to us and if you haven't had a chance to let people know about our podcasts please do so and make sure to review us on itunes it helps us out a lot well, I'm excited to talk about this story today. I think it's got the, the longest title of any story we've ever covered by Gene Wolfe, and uh, that in itself is uh, saying something. And the story is gorgeously written, and I think it's also a lot of fun. There's uh, there's some dad jokes in this story. In fact, the story might be mostly dad jokes, but I really enjoyed it. And as the title suggests, we're going to spend some time in a world like our own, but with a slightly different history. And we're going to get to meet some of the major figures of the Second World War in this story, including Churchill and Hitler. But I actually think this story is very much about 1973. It's very much about the contemporary world in which Wolf was writing this story. And I'm looking forward to talking about that in the discussion. There's an awful lot going on in this story. There's a bunch of different layers. And, and in classic Wolf fashion, everything is kind of twined together in such a way that it's a little bit difficult to untangle some of these knots. But we're going to do the best we can going through this story. How I Lost the Second World War is an epistolary story. It takes the form of a letter to the editor of a British game theory and board game design magazine called All New and Logical Original Games. Uh, The letter is importantly dated, I think, April 1st, 1938. The letter writer, what we get off the bat, what we learn about him is that he's a non-British citizen who has enjoyed the magazine and is himself concerned with military board games. And he's writing into this magazine to tell of his own participation in a game that has him rubbing elbows with the two major figures of our Second World War, though they're just sort of important world figures in this alternate world, uh, Winston Churchill and Adolf Hitler. This is a a quintessential wolf story here in that there is so much jam-packed right at the beginning of the story. So much world building, I I mean. And right off the bat, we can see that although Wolf is about to tell us a fanciful story, his speculative version of 1938 is grounded in the events of the First World War from 1914 to 1918 and the aftermath of that war. This is all firmly grounded in the interwar period, which in our 1938 has only about a year left to go before we are back in the war period. And in particular here, we get some details about Winston Churchill, who is introduced to us as the man who was dismissed from the position of First Lord of the Admiralty during the Great War for his sponsorship of the ill-fated Dardanelles expedition, and is thus a person of particular interest to all those of us who, like myself, are concerned with military board games and... I just want to take a moment to talk about this Dardanelles expedition that Wolf mentions here because this is his Memorial Day story in Castle of Days, and I think it's worth memorializing the soldiers and sailors who died in this campaign. 
when we speak about this now, we usually call it the Gallipoli campaign, and it was uh, an amphibious assault on the, the Dardanelles Strait in what is today Turkey by British and French forces in 1915. And the idea was to open up a supply route to Russia, one of the other allied powers here, or allies of France and Britain, and also to capture the Ottoman capital, Istanbul. And this was an extraordinarily controversial plan. And as Wolf writes here, it was a disaster. And it did cost Churchill his job and basically kept him out of politics for a really long time. In fact, until he's brought back into politics to defeat Hitler. And all told in this campaign, hundreds of thousands of people died over the 10 months or so of this campaign, which is uh, it's normal for fighting in the First World War that took nearly 20 million lives. And these were people from all over the world, uh, because both the British and the French had soldiers drawn from throughout their empires. And there were also a lot of Arab soldiers fighting in the British units who were hoping to secure their independence by overthrowing the Ottoman Empire. And I bring all of this up not only to memorialize these people to the extent that we can here on this show, but also because I think that this is a pointed reference on Wolf's part to clue us in that globalization is actually something of a theme here, that this this campaign that, that drew people from Australia and New Zealand, in fact, the anniversary of the first landing at Gallipoli is uh, an extraordinarily important national holiday still in Australia and New Zealand, that Wolf wants us to be thinking about globalization here is sort of my reading of the of the story. It is definitely a major theme of the story. And Wolf is kind of having a bit of fun with some of the effects of wartime industrialization and globalization as it impacts economies all over the world. It's, it's a major theme of this story. And it's a major part of the game in which the narrator takes place in. As we get into the occasion for writing this letter, this game, uh, we find out, originates, or the germ of it begins at Bath in England during an expo. The Germans and their leader, Adolf Hitler, are at this expo uh, to unveil the people's car. And this is one of the things that's going on in the story. All of the German words that have made it into our lexicon are anglicized in the story. So Volkswagen is people's car. Later on, we'll have lightning war instead of blitzkrieg. This is all over this story. But the Germans are here to unveil this car because they want to sell it really all over the world. And in particular to Britain, because they think it's going to be the backbone of their new economy. But before the letter writer really gets too deep into his time at the expo, he writes about a game, a separate game that he's playing with his friend Lansbury. And this is really the the two games in the title. We have the game where our character loses the Second World War and the game where he turns back the German invasion. And that's important to keep clear because it's pretty confusing, I think, at the way Wolf writes the story. Lansbury and the narrator have taken a four foot by six foot map and they've shellacked over it uh, to turn it into a board for a game that they're calling World War. And uh, we'll get another name for this game a little bit later on in the story. They have picked nations to play as they each take a group of nations and they choose this by casting lots. They've also included a rule in this game that they've invented where one player can upgrade their ships, firearms, or weapons, or units only if they can convince the other player that they should be allowed to do so. And if the other player agrees, they can use the new units immediately, that first player who convinced the other player. But the other player has to wait three turns in order to use the upgrade themselves. This is a 
wonderful innovation to a board game. So the men do cast lots on February 17th, which is one and a half months before the story is written. And Germany, Italy, Austria, Bulgaria, and Japan all go to the writer of this letter, while Britain, France, China, and the Low Countries all go to Lansbury. And of course, the letter writer finds this absurd based on how these nations have aligned themselves historically, but this is just the luck of the draw. I love this board game. This sounds like this would be an absolute blast to to play. And there was a there was a time in our lives when we played a lot of strategy board games together. And this was really the glue of our friend group in Denver. And it's really therefore part of the origin story of this podcast. And we eventually just had to ban risk because of the high level of resulting discord. At least that's the that's the euphemistic way I'm going to describe it here on the show. But uh, we always played Axis and Allies, which is basically the game that Wolf describes here. So this story immediately fills me with just a ton of nostalgia. And of course, we, we eventually went on to invent some of our own games, just like the narrator and his friend are doing here in this story. And we even worked out the, the rules for one of them via correspondence during a deployment to Iraq. Uh, and that maybe also uh, will have something to do with the revelation about who this uh, this narrator is when we get to the end of the, the story. And some of those games we came up with were actually pretty good. We should probably, I, I don't know, try to do something publicly with them someday or i don't know we should at least invite gene wolf over to play the fall of rome with us yeah it's fantastic this also really did fill me with nostalgia as well i was thinking about access and allies and risk while wolf is describing these rules i should have checked the publication date for the when those games came out i'm not sure when they were published but uh this feels like wolf is either ahead of his time or right on the edge of military board games as they're being made. Yeah, he's about 10 years ahead of his time, at least if we're thinking about Axis and Allies, which came out in in 1984. I got my first copy of it, I think 1990 was probably when when I had it originally. But this type of board gaming, this kind of invent your own game and play it in your circle of friends was extraordinarily popular uh, among a certain demographic during the the 70s and the 60s, really following the the Second World War. These these real uh, detailed strategy and even sort of tactical military board games and, you know, even role-playing games. Dungeons and Dragons really has its origins in those types of games as well, which also is coming out right around this time. So uh, Wolf has his finger on the pulse of the gaming movement here in the 70s, which is amazing. I also just want to emphasize here, even though you, you narrated this perfectly well, Brandon, I just want to emphasize here that this game that the narrator and his friend Lansbury are playing has randomly predicted the alliances of the Second World War, which is not actually going to happen in this speculative world. I'm going to have a question about the relationship between this board game that they're playing and our real world in the discussion. So I just want to make sure that we're thinking about that as we continue. One thing I do love that Wolf does here is point out the absurdity of some of these alliances that nobody really would have guessed. And and he makes a point at the end of the story to point out these new alliances and new breaks between nations that occur as a result of the Second World War, where the people who ally themselves with one another break and become allied with another nation. And uh, it just really emphasizes the volatility of the 20th century and its diplomatic difficulties uh, between all these nations. I think Wolf does a great job of kind of highlighting that while also kind of downplaying it at the same time. It's fantastic. 
Well, in any event, the narrator learns about this expo as he's reading The Guardian and thinking about his strategy for the game and what he's going to do with all these nations that have been handed to him by the luck of the draw. And he realizes that somebody from one of the countries that he is playing as in World War uh, might be there and could give him some real-time insight into how they would go about this new war uh, that he's role-playing. And as I said before, the people's car from Germany is being unveiled. And the narrator refers to this event as the people's car invasion of Britain. And so here is the invasion that the narrator is going to be turning back. Also in attendance at this expo are the Japanese, and they have their toy cars, which is Wolf playing with the name Toyota, which comes up a few times in this story, uh, which were driverless due to the Japanese use of the recent invention of transistors. This is actually kind of a, a second introduction to the story. What we've had up to this point is kind of prologue. So again, here at the beginning, as this narrator is getting to the expo, we get a, a ton of really rich world building. Now that we're at this exposition in Bath, the, the alternate history details really start to emerge. And the first one that really jumps out at me is that the German contingent here at this expo have arrived by airship. And the airship is named Graf Spee, which was, in fact, uh, a major battleship in the German Navy in the 1930s at the start of the Second World War in our universe. So here, that name has been put onto an airship. This is not just a, a matter of, of switching the name because German airship usage actually essentially stopped in 1937. So a year before this story is taking place in, in our world following the, the very famous Hindenburg disaster. And then the second detail that is different here is the people's car itself, the, the, the Volkswagen. This was was famously a project that was supported by Hitler in the 1930s, and it was supposed to have created exactly the kind of vehicle that Wolf envisions here. It was supposed to have done that by 1938, the year of this story. But the project was totally unsuccessful. They did not have these cars ready to go by 1938. The whole thing was a complete disaster, actually. So Wolf here is envisioning a world in which these two failures of the German transportation industry were actually massive successes. And I think he predicts what becomes an alternate history staple in uh, other science fiction stories and television shows, which is the Hindenburg disaster never happened and airships become the normal way to travel. And that that's another great detail of this story is that reading it sort of backwards, this is a major clue that this is an alternate history. But I don't know if there were many uh, stories that used airships as a way to point to the fact that we are living in an alternate history. It's really cool. Yeah, he's got his finger on the pulse of the nascent steampunk movement here as well, I think. And, you know, he's got these uh, these radio-controlled toy cars or driverless toy cars as well, which, uh, you know, as you pointed out, is, is a, a joke. It's a pun of sorts, right? This is a play on, uh, on the, the name Toyota. But this also actually has to do with this time period. Toyota is a company that was also founded during this time. And similar to what he's doing with Germany here, he is envisioning a, a 1930s Japanese industrial output that actually looks a lot more like the 1970s, like the Japanese economy of the 1970s, which special 
specializes in cars, and he also tells us electronics here. And uh, this is something I'm going to want to talk about in the discussion, so I want to emphasize that here. And we get even more jokes here just on this one page. And we know from Operation Aries that Wolf loves slogans. He loves to write slogans that sound like they would be the real slogans of something, but are clearly kind of imbecilic in some way. It's, it allows us, the reader, to have a laugh at the organization, the bureaucracy that has come up with this slogan without even realizing that it was a, it's a dumb thing to say. There are a number of these jokes here. We get actually three of them. But the one that really jumped out to me, the one that I thought was the best here, is the slogan, in spirit, they are as British as the royal family. And this idea that the German Volkswagen is as British as the royal family is a pretty wolfish joke. Because what's funny here is that the British royal family actually is German and not British. The the current dynasty is the House of Windsor, which takes its name from Windsor Castle. But that was a change made during the First World War from the House of Saxe Coburg and Gotha, a German duchy. And because of the war, the idea of the British monarch having a German last name was unsettling. And then the revolution in Russia in 1917 suggested that unsettling could pretty quickly become enraging. And so in order to not have a revolution on their own hands, the royal family changed their name to like the most English name they could they could think of. But it's it's fake, right? They spoke German. They had close family relations with German aristocrats. And this was even an issue during the 1930s and provides uh, much of the backstory uh, to the the Netflix show The Crown, which I highly recommend. And also, I'll just say there's there's some chance that Elizabeth and I are going to end up doing a podcast about this show at some point. We talk for hours about it as we're watching it. That would be fantastic. Also, having a German heritage is, uh, turns out, a really important plot point for unveiling the identity of this main character, this narrator, which we won't reveal until the end of the story because it's not revealed to us by Wolf until the end of the story. But being able to move sort of fluidly between the German and British worlds is essential to this narrator's identity. And it's really fantastic the way that Wolf is tying all of these things together. Well, our narrator here is at the expo and feeling a little hopeless because he's not sure that he will find somebody who can help him strategize against Lansbury. This is kind of an amazing character move, his outsourcing his strategy to a real German military expert is crazy. And as, as you said, it got me into real trouble uh, playing Risk at different <laughs> times in our own history. But uh, the narrator looks around and he sees a man in a flight master uniform here. This is an untranslated German word in the story. And the narrator introduces himself to this man and congratulates the man on the great airship flying above them. The German man introduces himself here as Goring. And Goring is, we learn, a combat veteran uh, based on his medals on his uniform. And our letter writer, our narrator, asks how the employment of aircrafts would be different if the Great War were to be fought now in the present in 1938. And Goring responds basically that Germany has a much better military and much better weapons than it had back then. And that Goring would recommend that the Germans would engage in a lightning war by sending lots of planes that carried one bomb each to basically zip in and bomb somebody and zip out. And a lightning war is the anglicized phrase for blitzkrieg. This talk of how the war would be fought endears our narrator to Goring 
And Goring says that he knows someone inside the tent that the narrator ought to meet as well. The narrator is hesitant to go inside the tent because there is no way that he would be able to get inside because he has no real credentials. But Goring, ever the good guy, is going to help him out here. So they do make it inside the tent and Goring introduces the letter writer to Churchill. Churchill and the narrator take a moment to chat and make each other's acquaintance. And this sort of conversation takes place until Hitler takes the stage and begins the demonstration of the unveiling of the people's car. The demonstration goes very well as far as these things go. And Hitler takes it a step further here in a stroke of genius of intuition and riling up the crowd by offering any journalist a chance to try out the car, to do their own demonstration. Churchill here takes the bait and he steps forward and now Hitler and Churchill are speaking to one another with a few journalists and witnesses standing around. Churchill lets Hitler know that he prefers Britain's own car, the Centurion. And now there's tension in the room and our letter writer suggests as a way maybe to break the tension or perhaps out of uh, an abundance of love for gaming that a race take place between the two automobiles, the Centurion and the People's Car. And Churchill here says, yes, don't you call this car, the People's Car, the Race Master? And, you know, this is one of many puns and historical nuggets, as, as we pointed out, that Wolf has written into this story. Um, and Hitler says, yes, of course. And then now Hitler and Churchill go about creating a new set of rules for the race. And now this is the second game with a second complex set of rules that we are introduced to in this story. Churchill, who is a great strategist, suggests that since neither the People's Car nor the Centurion were designed for racing around a track, that those cars should simulate the conditions of urban and suburban traffic for which they're designed. The Japanese cars can get in on this, and they can just be programmed to create the simulated conditions of urban traffic and the difficulty of finding parking spots in the suburban roads. These are all Churchill suggestions, but now Hitler wants to make a rule for himself, for his own cars. And he says that the cars will only be driven on the right side of the road. And here, Churchill objects to these rules because his drivers, the British drivers, all drive on the left side of the road, but they come to an accord. They decide that the German and British cars can go in opposite directions on the track so that the British cars will begin driving on the urban track, the German cars will begin driving on the suburban track, and they will pass one another in the middle, but they'll all have to follow the same rules as far as the track is concerned, and they'll all be driving on their normal side of the road. And really here, there's just far too much about how difficult it is to park in England, I suppose, and it's really just an extraordinarily complex game that Wolf invents uh, for this story. Very quickly, we time the story up to race day. Everything is ready to go, and the narrator uses his brief acquaintance with Churchill in order to gain admission to the main paddock, really the VIP area. Churchill here approaches the narrator as Goring's friend and mentions that the English team cannot use the drivers that Churchill has brought because they're all professional drivers. And the German team says, well, that's not okay. Well, you can't use professional drivers. And now 
basically they are one driver shy of having a full team that they can field on the racetrack. A mixed metaphor if I've ever uh, written one <laughs> myself here. But the narrator naturally volunteers and now he's going to race for the British because there's nothing that's stopping him from having uh, German heritage but also being for his allies. Yeah, the rules of this game are extraordinarily complex. They're far more complex for this race than they are for the, the actual board game called World War. Uh, I'm surprised by that, but maybe I should not be, knowing Wolf's predilection for cars and also for complex systems. What I want to talk about here really is the identity of the narrator. We're going to learn at the end of the story that he is, in fact, Dwight Eisenhower, future U.S. president who was also the commander of the Allied forces that invaded Europe to fight the Germans in 1944 near the end of the Second World War. So what we have here in this race is a competition between Hitler and Churchill, and Churchill enlists the help of Eisenhower. And I suppose that this is one way of describing the Western Front of the European theater of the Second World War. So all of this is meant to be funny to the reader, though classic Wolf style. It's only funny on the second read when you actually know who the narrator is. Right. Wolf does not reveal this until the very end of the story. And, you know, being so removed from, I don't know, an education, I suppose, on my part that has taught me the history of each president and, and, like where they grew up and what's going on. The clues that Wolf drops at the very end of the story were very obscure to me. And I kind of had to do some extra research to figure out who this character was. And the story maybe is even going to be even more difficult to piece together two or three generations from our own. But uh, it's, it's a lot of fun nonetheless. Well, our narrator is, you know, Eisenhower, as you said, Glenn, and he has been enlisted to race and he's now on the course. And it is a very, very stressful race course because it's just like driving, I suppose, like in London uh, at the height of rush hour. And the narrator is super stressed out, but he does the best he can. And he, he notices that after he passes the halfway mark and he's in last place for the British here. He still has not passed a single German on the road and realizes now that the British victory is a foregone conclusion. We learn that the British do indeed win this race, and this has been covered by a lot of press and other media outlets. And as a result, the people's car is widely criticized and no one in Britain wants one. And it is in this way then that the narrator turns back the German invasion and again, I just want to highlight, because this story was confusing to me on a few reads, that the invasion here refers to the invasion of the people's car. But that is only one of the games that the narrator is playing that the title refers to. While all of the race preparations and while the race is taking place and has been going on, the narrator is still playing his game with Lansbury. We learn that they have named the game, actually, not just World War, but World War II. And he has spoken to Churchill about it through his interactions with him. And Churchill wants to see this game. But it's not until after Lansbury and the narrator have finished playing that, the, that Churchill can actually come and see the board and understand the whole setup. We learn that the narrator has lost playing as Germany and its allies. The narrator has lost even though he has used Goring's lightning war strategy. And Churchill has come and they're talking about this game. But what the narrator is really interested in is understanding how Britain actually won the race against the Germans. So Churchill here explains. 
basically he has used his limited understanding of transistors to turn the racetrack into a transistor that favored the flow of traffic moving with the British cars and against the German cars that made it very difficult for the Germans to move forward at all in the direction that they were moving in. I'm not even going to pretend to understand all of this, but Wolf certainly understands it, and he knows exactly what he means in the writing of this section of this story. Yeah, Wolf is really stretching his engineering legs here. It's a lot like the writing that we had in uh, House of Ancestors, where he's describing this extremely technical uh, device or in- invention in an attempt to get a lay reader to-, to understand it, and then he's also trying to deploy it here as a metaphor. And neither you nor I have any engineering background at all. So these passages, I think, are always a little bit befuddling to me. But I enjoy seeing Wolf having an opportunity to write about the thing that he loves, the thing that he does with his day job. Right? I think it's great that he does get to actually put these things in his stories. Yeah, it is great. And for me, it doesn't quite land. And I think it's because I don't have any expertise or technical knowledge of any of this stuff. There's been one technical explanation of how computers or transistors or things like this really work in a novel that I've ever read that really landed for me. And that was in The Three-Body Problem by Six and Liu, where he explains how logic gates work absolutely brilliantly and beautifully. But I'm just glad Wolf is able to write about his career in some of these stories that it leaves a lasting mark. Uh, and if you go back and reread these stories, it is impossible to miss that Wolf is an engineer at heart on top of being a master storyteller. It's really great. Well, after this explanation about uh, transistors and the racetrack, Churchill looks down on the board that he and our narrator, Eisenhower, are looking over, and he notices that there are two burn marks on the board. The narrator here explains them. He says that some coals from Lansbury's pipe fell on the board towards the end of the game, and it cost him two cities in the south of Japan because they're playing somehow that uh, that coals from a pipe can influence the gameplay of this game. It's a fantastic little rule. I wonder how many arguments they had over that while they were playing. (laughs) Yeah, the few details we get of the game that Eisenhower and Lansbury have called World War II, they do line up precisely with the events of the actual World War II. There's a surprisingly easy German occupation of France, which is followed later eventually by a German defeat and then at the end of the war these two Japanese cities are burned up by something that dropped on them from above right these are the the two nuclear bombs that the US dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki to to end the the war in the Pacific yeah and this detail is actually super important to bringing us to the conclusion of this story which is really about nuclear anxieties as we get to the end here churchill now responds to Eisenhower. And he says that he should be careful when they play the game because they could actually end up burning up the whole board next time. And Churchill notes that the Japanese made cars here are going to invade the US and that they're already being unloaded in Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. Shortly after these words of warning and bits of wisdom, Churchill leaves. But there's still more to the story. Lansbury and the narrator are starting a new game soon, but it's going to have to be played through the mail, as the narrator is going to be returning home to the U.S. In the new game, which will interest the readers of the magazine that the narrator is writing to, the struggle will be between the U.S., Britain, and China 
against the USSR, Poland, Romania, and other Eastern European states. And because it's really not a war unless Germany is involved, Lansbury and the narrator decide to split Germany between them. The narrator ends his story here, his letter, by saying that he will try to keep Churchill's warning in mind about burning the whole board. But both himself and Lansbury are heavy smokers. This is the end of the letter, but there is a brief editor's note as well. And in this editor's note, we learn the identity of the writer of this letter, who was known as the Unknown Soldier. That is how he signs the letter. He is an American officer of Germanic descent who was very near the age of having served in the Great War, but he did not serve in it. He is attached to the American embassy in London, and he does not believe that his country will ever use the military force again in his lifetime. And this is some of the alternate history facts of this story. When he gets back to Kansas, which is the main clue here, he'll get a job operating an agency for Buick. His name is Dwight. And of course, this is the point in the story where piecing these clues together, we learn that this man is none other than, as you said, Glenn, Dwight D. Eisenhower. And this is the end of the story. I love this postscript here. The way that Wolf deploys this information, of course, is brilliant, and it does make the rereading of the story so important and really opens it up for us. But I think the the most important thing in this little postscript here, though, really is Eisenhower's belief that wars are a thing of the past and that he'd better look for a career in the car industry. And, and I think that this mirrors how most of us in 2019 feel about our present world. Wars between powerful states are a thing of the past. I mean, they're a thing that really hasn't actually happened much since the the Second World War. But there is still national competition and imperialism, in fact, on the global stage. It's all just economic. And I think that's what all of this emphasis on cars and importing cars and trying to keep people from importing cars is all about in this story. And that's going to lead into the, the first question that I have in the discussion. And although the major industry that is present here in this story is cars, it's the the automobile industry, Wolf does also bring into it electronics. I mean, this is how we get the whole bit about the transistor to to begin with, uh, and some other types of products. And as I said during the recap, Wolf is envisioning a 1930s Japanese industrial output that actually looks a lot more like the 1970s, like the industrial output of Japan when Wolf is writing this story. And in addition to that, Wolf uses some language about Germany conquering the world with its industrial products since it failed to conquer the world with warfare during the First World War. And this was something that Americans said about Japan in the 1970s and the 1980s and, and often said it with hostility. As companies like Toyota and Sony were dominating the market for cars and electronics, there were Americans who were quite vocal about refusing to buy products from a country that they had had to fight a terrible war against. I think everyone has heard a parent or a grandparent, perhaps, or an uncle or something, say something like this. And it wasn't just individual protest about this. This was a massive 
topic of political discourse at this time as well. The question of should the United States adopt protectionist strategies in order to safeguard laborers who build cars in Michigan and to protect the steel belt and such. And especially because the very prosperity of Germany and Japan following the Second World War, the very prosperity that's allowing them to make these amazing industrial products, make these awesome cars, make great radios and TVs. This was the result of the Marshall Plan that used American tax revenues to rebuild those countries following the war. Because of that, there was also a sense that Japan and Germany had somehow actually won the war by having us establish those strong economies for them and then letting them live under the safety of the U.S. nuclear umbrella while they then outcompeted American industries. And that's essentially what the title of this story is, How I Lost the Second World War and Helped Turn Back the German Invasion. Here in the story, it's a joke, right, that the German invasion is these cars. But here, it's actually the other way around. America beat back the German invasion in the real World War II, but ultimately, in the economic competition in the aftermath of the war, has lost, has lost that. And so, in effect, has actually lost the Second World War. And, you know, of course, we've seen that we are still in a phase of Wolf's career in which he's very much interested in politics and political ideologies. And so, although I think the title of this story clearly evokes this hot topic that his readers would have inherently understood when they were opening up Analog in 1973, I'm not clear here if Wolf is actually advocating protectionist trade policies or arguing against them. I'm not really quite sure what he's actually wanting that contemporary readership to understand about this. I think we can take it for granted based on all of the things we've read about Wolf that he really doesn't love war, that it's not something that he thinks is great or glorious or good. And even more than that, he is concerned about the effects that the combination of globalization and capitalism are going to have together in tandem. And these are real concerns that come up in his stories, his real concerns about what it means for an American person to be caught up in this sort of world. I think Wolf's political alliances lay more towards, I don't want to say isolationist policies, but definitely taking care of America first before giving to other nations. Policies that support maybe infrastructure and jobs and you know, we've seen universal basic income come up as a positive in his writings as well. And I think this story is meant to show us the real concern of, one, the volatility of shifting alliances in this world based on economic grounds and the type of real damage that those alliances can have, the the very real threat of nuclear war that is taking place in the 1970s, and also the potentially damaging effects of America using its own tax revenues to rebuild the world after the war and questioning those policies that allow us to support economies that were damaged by us and our troops, but also our allies during World War II. I mean, America was really one of the only functioning economies after World War II because no war was fought on our land. Nothing was really destroyed. I don't know if Wolf is celebrating that as a victory in this story, but he's certainly questioning why we are using so much of our wealth to rebuild other nations. I think that's a big part of what's going on in this story. 
This is really the second story that we've read by Wolf that's very much about cars. The The first one was Car Sinister, and they have very different approaches to what the cars are for in each of those stories. Uh, but something they have in common, I think, actually is a concern for the American automobile industry, and in particular, the workers, the laborers in the American automotive industry. In Car Sinister, the concern was automation, was being replaced by robots, was uh, was the concern there, which Wolf is actually giving to us through the metaphor of cars having sex and naturally or biologically reproducing, and therefore they're needing fewer and fewer human workers on the assembly line, and, and that's going to displace people. That was a real theme of that story. Here again, he seems to be concerned about protecting the American car companies. I think you're right that Wolf, to me, in this story, does seem to have these protectionist policies. And, and Wolf is by no means a Marxist here. I know that in our current time, talking about protecting workers' rights and things like that makes us, for some reason, sound uh, like we're socialist or communist. But in reality, these are these are American citizens that Wolf is always interested in fusing with dignity, the dignity of work, the dignity of having a job. Uh, the economy is good. American capitalism is good. But I think he's concerned that America is moving further and further away from policies that protect its own citizens and have its own citizens' interests at heart. And I think these types of questions are hyper-relevant, even in our present political climate, where talking about protecting the rights or providing rights or income or improving the lives and livelihoods of the American citizen, what is the average American citizen, is somehow viewed upon as very skeptical, as for some reason, it has become popular to cast our vision towards the world and our place in the world, rather than building a nation that is rooted in giving a good life to an American citizen. And this is, I think, going to be a big part of the debates in, in the 2020 election. And of course, we're living in the future of this story. We're, we're living nearly 50 years uh, in the future of this story. And so we actually know how this worked out, this this issue that was being hotly debated at the time. We know how it worked out. The United States did not adopt protectionist measures, and many of these industries did collapse. And in fact, I used the term steel belt a few minutes ago. We don't call it that anymore. We call it the rust belt because all of that industry, the whole steel industry, which is very much fueled by cars, uh, collapsed. And there were lots of reasons why that collapsed, but competition with Japanese cars was a major factor, and it was one that people were very concerned about. And we, we live in a city that was part of the Rust Belt and is only just now actually beginning to recover from that. We live in a, in a neighborhood that uh, even 10 years ago would not have been safe to walk around at night or really actually at all. There are whole parts of Philadelphia that actually look like perhaps the Second World War was fought on our soil, and it's because of the collapse of these industries. I don't know what economists think or what historians think about those decisions, if it actually would have been better or would have been worse or would have amounted to the same thing if the U.S. had adopted protectionist measures, but the negative effects on the car industry did have damaging and really destructive consequences. And Wolf was right to be concerned about them here. And I think this is a really clever way to write a story about that. 
Right, and his concerns have really played out in full force. Is a lot of manufacturing has either been replaced by robotic workers, as we see in Car Sinister, or has been moved to other countries. And as automation is going to continue to impact many fields in the job market, these are still concerns that I think are really, really relevant. And of course, the 70s saw its own economic collapse that brought a lot of this to the forefront as well. Well, I've really only got one more question, and it is maybe kind of a ridiculous question, but I promise it is not, is anyone in this story, the Virgin Mary, though I searched I searched high and low. I'm sure you did. There's not even a woman in this story, but I know you spent two hours looking for one. <laughs> yeah, that, would, that sort of thing would never stop me, Brandon. I mean, come on, what is this, amateur night? <laughs> Well, I, I, so what I want to talk about here is uh, is the game. The, the The board game isn't at all necessary to the, the plot of this story, which is all about the car race. So perhaps uh, and a broad question is, I, is what is the function of the, the game in this story? And then I'll get to the ridiculous question. I can imagine that this story begins as a title first and a story second. And I think Wolf had this great title in his head. This is obviously speculation, and then decided to write a story around the title. We know that it's not the first time it's happened for him, uh, that his whole island archipelago, the Doctor Island stories, were really just stories written out of the basis of titles that were kind of written on a bet, and they're all phenomenal, and we'll be covering them soon. But I can imagine that Wolf had this idea for a story uh, that was based on the title, and he wanted to turn it into two different things. The main purpose of the board game in this story, one is for the occasion of writing the letter. This is a magazine that is interested in board games and game theory, that their interest in this race would be secondary to the interest of the board game. The The board game really opens and closes this story. The board game is also important for letting us know that we are in an alternate history that Wolf is making strange the events of the Second World War and the events of the Cold War and the oddity of the military alliances and nations alliances during these wars. I mean, it is a never ending shock to me that America was allied with Russia during the Second World War and that America ignored for so long the crimes of Russia against its people after the Second World War in order to maintain a certain sense of the moral high ground for allying itself with Russia during the Second World War. You know, even if you read about Stalingrad during the war, you know that Russia is playing a very different war game than the U.S. is, has a very different sense of its own people. And I think Wolf is trying to point out here the insanity that was diplomacy in World War II. One thing we didn't really talk about in the recap is how the narrator calls Churchill out for essentially cheating during the race because he designed the race in such a way that the Britons couldn't lose. But Churchill says that's not cheating, that's diplomacy. We're creating the rules as we go along, and I kind of created the rules in our favor. So the board game is really essential to this story because Wolf is ultimately making a point about the madness that was World War II. If it never took place and you were looking at history from the 16th century, I suppose, is where he really begins looking at it in this story, to the Great War. 
and how all of that changed after the Great War or World War One, and how crazy our history has been since then. One of the things that really jumped out at me about the the detail of this board game in the story is the insistence on having everything that happens in the game mirror our own world to include the literal burning up of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Some of this is tongue in cheek and it's, it is all meant to be funny. This story is meant to be amusing. You're, you're supposed to be laughing at all of the, the puns and the other types of dad jokes. And you're supposed to be laughing at these, uh, these analogs as well. But this emphasis on the nuclear weapons in, at the end of the Second World War and then the looking ahead to the Cold War uh, just made me wonder. And here's the ridiculous question that is, are we here in our world, are we actually living in the world of this game, which is actually a material object in some other universe? Is that what Wolf wants us to understand about this game here? I'm not going to lie. When I read this story and then reread it uh, to kind of get a, a better sense of what's going on here, I was looking for clues that the world that you and I live in is the world that is the simulation of this board game. Uh, but I didn't really find evidence for that in the story. I really think the point of this story is, one, I think Wolf has too much of a sense of, of dignity for the ordinary human being to reduce the human experience to being players in a war game. I think his ex- own experience in the Korean War would kind of hinder his instinct to write a story where we are living in a simulation that is only about war. I don't see Wolf really having that instinct, and I didn't really find evidence for it in this story. I think this is Wolf developing his craft and his technique of making strange, which we just see getting better and better and better until he's able to show us something that is so recognizable to us something like a waiting room with coffee and danishes in a way that is wholly unrecognizable and strange he is perfecting his craft on some level in this story Um, but i think he is also trying to display the real concerns that people in the 1970s had and so i don't want to say that there's any evidence in this story that wolf is trying to say that we are living in a simulation of another person's alternate history. Rather, he's using fiction to show us a different way that history could have gone. Yeah, it's certainly not what the story is about. It would be of no consequence if it is true. But it it felt like that was what was going on for me as soon as the game was introduced. And I don't know if it's just that a lifetime spent reading science fiction stories has prepped me for that, or if Wolf here maybe is actually making some kind of tongue-in-cheek homage to Philip K. Dick's The, the Man in the High Castle. Uh, you know, I don't know what's what's quite going on with that, but you, you brought up something that I think we should maybe end our episode on, which is uh, Wolf's respect for the the people who died in the second world war soldiers and civilians alike this is in castle of days as the memorial day story so this is meant to be memorializing soldiers in this story collection but also the 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 pen name that eisenhower uses when he's sending in this letter to be published anonymously is unknown soldier as in the tomb of the unknown soldier which is something that Many countries have a grave that is meant to uh, memorialize, commemorate, and, and celebrate the lives of 
soldiers whose bodies have not been recovered or whose identities can't be known, people whose names and deeds have been lost to time, but nonetheless served their country in awful circumstances and had perhaps extraordinary acts of, of courage and bravery and, and heroism in those efforts. So I think we, we should end on that note here tonight. And so we will. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know if you were able to suss out any more about Wolf's uh, stance on the issue of protectionism in the 1970s. This just isn't an era Brandon and I lived through. We don't really know this very well. It wasn't a lived experience for us. We'd love to hear more uh, about your possible experiences with that, or just if you're able to glean something out of this that we just didn't see. Yeah, I would love to hear more about the history of this time. We've had many people who are knowledgeable about this period of time chime in on our forums. We've learned so much. You should go to our forums anyway and find out things you maybe didn't know about Wolf or these periods or some of these stories. Uh, We'd also like to encourage you to support our show on Patreon if you haven't already. You can find us at Clay Temple Media on Patreon. Of course, we have this show, the Gene Wolf Literary Podcast, Elder Sign, and Lower Decks, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Please support us if you like what we're doing. Next time, we'll be covering the story Feather Tigers, which you can find in the collection The Island of Dr. Death and other stories and other stories. Until then... We greet you and say farewell.